0: Welcome to the Digital Euro Podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy
1: the episode. Hey, welcome to the Digital Euro Association Podcast. My name is Valentin Seehausen, and today I'm talking to. Franklin Noll of Noll Historical Consulting. Um, Franklin, welcome and uh, thank you for being here.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a treat to get to share my knowledge with a vast audience again.
1: Yes, perfect. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I obviously prepared and looked at your CV and I found a very interesting career switch. Um, What did lead you to like, start your own company and like, stop being a professor?
0: Okay. Um, (laughs) First of all, I'm I'm Franklin, all president and historian of Null historical consulting. And I've been doing this probably for like 20 years now. And as valentine said um i started out in academia I, I have a phd in history uh actually in modern britain uh with a subfield in u.s women's history and mm-hmm. so so as your audience would would naturally think this is a natural progression into uh crypto from a, such a start
1: um <laughs> maybe obvious yes <laughs>
0: uh but one thing um academia is a very different world um probably those of you who are in phd programs kind of recognize that um and most of you are economists and i'm a historian so i think differently than economists and i point this out to economists all the time and so academia is i never As you know, there's a ladder to tenure, and I kind of got bored climbing that ladder. And so I wanted to do something a bit different, and I originally was more focused on traditional history, uh, going into archives, going into the Library of Congress, uh, searching stuff down, tracking stuff down. But an opportunity came along to work at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing as a as a contractor and a company needed somebody to go in there and figure out what Treasury securities were about, Uh, because the Bureau, the BEP, has the full collection of all the uh, Treasury securities that they printed since the Civil War. So it's it's a massive collection and nobody could nobody really understood them. And I thought, I have an undergraduate degree in business and economics. I can do this. And so that's how it kind of started. And I started by specializing in treasury securities, sovereign debt, um, the. US national debt, and these matters and I moved on. As I stayed at the BEP as a contractor, moved on into to money, banknotes. Uh, so I did monetary history, uh, from the authorizing legislation to how the Treasury managed uh, the cash cycle, um, how cash was printed, um, the Federal Reserve, and everything that's connected to that. So I just kind of kept going in that, and then COVID hit. And I kind of needed a different change of direction. And I had been vaguely familiar with Bitcoin. So I started looking at crypto. And I find that um, there's a common thread running through basically this long history of money. And so I consider myself a historian of monetary technology. And what you see with the transition from banknotes to e-money to crypto is... The same principles apply but the technology changes over time so going into crypto it you know it wasn't really that disorienting because oh i see what you're doing here but you're using a different technology to do it so that's kind of how i moved from uh women's studies into crypto over you know 30 years something like that
1: that's a very interesting um change of topics and <laughs> I think it opens up a lot of very interesting questions I can ask you. I just want to clarify one small thing as I, as you are in, um, in the States, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You mentioned e-money. What did you mean by e-money as the in-between step between banknotes and crypto?
0: Uh, e-money, well, as you probably know, it has a lot of definitions, but it's what mm-hmm. arose in the 1980s and 90s. Basically, using the internet to move money around—that's kind of what I term e-money. And of course, you can talk about many different things, and it evolves into um, credit cards and other transactions like that, up into PayPal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: I see, perfect. Thank you for clarification, as mm-hmm. in Europe, this is a very uh, specific legal um, yeah. Uh, category. Yeah so okay um let's let's um briefly paint paint this development of money from um from banknotes and uh, you said you are involved in and in, yeah research and um and and about the actual printing of money and today we mm-hmm. um like we use the term printing money in a, in a different way because like we all often refer to it when we say we also print e-money and trigger inflation uh-huh. so um what is your storyline? How did how did money evolve from 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 banknotes over e money, and what what is happening now? What what is your broader perspective on this?
0: Mm. Okay, let me figure out how to organize this in my head. Um, well, let me. I I I wrote a, a a brief history of CBDCs, and let let me just use that as kind of the perfect, the outline and i have to i have to use the us as as my base and it should apply to europe or anywhere else so if you're in the 19th century um there are there basically money is transmitted via physical form and that could be you know a specie or more likely especially in the united states it would done in a banknote form or a banker's acceptance or some other, uh, quasi cash instrument. And so up until the civil war, which is 1860 or so, uh, there was a basically a private monetary system in the U S, uh, run by uh, private banks. Um, there was no central bank at that time, except periodically in the early 19th century. And so you have this common story, and you, you used to hear the narrative wildcat, wildcat uh, money. Uh, a lot of uh, congressional people came up with that trope or that narrative uh, last year, and that was because all these private banks issued their own banknotes, and they had varying value. As you might expect, because some banks were more secure, some were net less, and so you had these <laughs> concurrent currencies, as Hayek called it. So, so, uh, sounds familiar. Wo-
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Now the problem with this for the U.S. government—they really didn't care too much about monetary policy, but it was hard to collect taxes uh, when you, when anybody could. All that all people had were these banknotes of varying value. Um, Mm -hmm. So when the Civil War came along and you had to start doing this massive centralized funding for this war effort, um, the central government basically took control of the monetary system. And that's when you start to have one form of currency, uh, the U.S. dollar. But this also gets complicated. And I don't want to spend an hour talking about this. Um, (laughs) So basically, the the US government monopolized currency. They already had control of coin. And they took control of banknotes. So the only issuer of banknotes or the printer of banknotes was the US government. And so what what happens is to pull up back a step, um, the US government now had the monopoly on this monetary technology of coins and banknotes. And They had this basically for a century uh, until the 1980s and 1990s when this new e-money started to show up. And this caused a ripple of panic, uh, not only in the U.S., but in other central banks around the world, because by this time, all the other central banks also had their own monopolies on this monetary technology. And here comes this new technology, which breaks the monopoly, you know, now Uh, central banks are writing papers worried about people getting points on their credit cards because people might just start using points instead of the regular fiat or whatever you had. And so this creates, you know, uh, people are concerned, will central banks still have enough senior age if people start switching to e-money? And and so there's a big flurry of activity. And this dies down once the e-money market matures And basically, you're just dealing with bank money, as was done in the past, only it's now in electronic form. And so things are going along. And then Bitcoin shows up uh, in 2008. And there's not a lot of attention paid to it in uh, central banks until probably 2014, 2015. And that's when Bitcoin has had a run or two and other cryptos start popping up, and now it becomes another concern because this could be another way that the, the government monopoly on money will be ended. And now there's this another flurry of activity which really looks like what was written about e-money before that. It's the same fears that are being translated to crypto now, and so you get all this. And now, as as you well know, there is a widespread move on central banks to move into CBDCs, or at least have that capability to do so if they need to. And so it's it's this urge of the central government to regain this control, even if it's not a total monopoly anymore. It's still they can control monetary policy, uh, maybe the value of of the dollar or euro or whatever. So it's, it is this recurring theme that comes forward with each new technology, there's this readjustment, um, and almost a cooptation of the new technology for government to retain its control. So that's, that's the short version.
1: I see that that's very interesting. Um, So two things like is it this pendulum uh, that swings back because like we first had this free flow of currencies at least in the mm-hmm. states and um, then the nationalization of money mm-hmm. and um, then Hayek writing about the denationalization of money and now this thing actually happening because of technology and uh, innovation and then you mentioned this, this other strand, this um, this um, readjustment to technology where governments try to keep control over currency, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. And yes. this is where we are now. Yes. Right? Yes,
0: that's what you see happening now. And uh, central banks trying to come to terms with how to handle this. And you can see almost the Fed doing its thinking as it releases its few statements, you know, a lot of early statements is, you know, crypto's not important. We don't need to worry about this. It's a bunch of nerdy guys over in the corner doing this and that. And then you move on to, well, maybe we need to shut all this down. Um, it's, it's, it's a threat. And now you see the Fed and other central banks. Okay. How can we work these disparate currencies into our existing systems and thereby kind of keep control of it, but still allow private enterprise to operate to a certain extent. And even in uh, Secretary Yellen's statement from a couple of weeks ago when she was speaking at uh, Georgetown, I think, you you see this, you know, we don't want to clamp down or destroy private initiatives, especially in these new financial areas, but the dollar needs to remain predominant no matter what happens. So we are going to be in control and, you know, we can regulate these stable coins and uh, these other private currencies that are off in the corners operating on, on DEXs or whatever, or in DeFi. So you still see, see this happening. Um, in the 1970s um, there was a movement in, uh, in the United States, a lot of uh, people wanted to create private currencies, um, mostly to deal with inflation. Uh, if you could create this private currency, that would maintain more stable value. And there was a lot of pushback uh, from the federal government. And so they, uh, these individuals had to be very careful in how you set up a private currency so that it doesn't compete with the dollar. Uh, It has to operate in its own limited ecosystem. uh, And then it's not a threat. And that's what you kind of see with uh, stablecoins. As long as stablecoins operate over here in their ecosystem and don't pose a direct challenge, they're okay. Uh, So you see a lot of that going on.
1: And you actually have a proposal how governments could regulate stablecoins. And you... Say we can learn from the regulation of the private banknotes. I guess from the nineteenth mm-hmm. century. Can you elaborate on this? Because I found this very interesting.
0: Well, my views have been uh, validated by se- Senator Toomey, who introduced a, a bill in the Senate two weeks ago, which looks a lot like what I I put out. So, mm-hmm. very quickly, um, when we're dealing with private banknotes, that This is, I'm going back to the Civil War in the 1860s, how the original intent of the U.S. government was to have private banks run the currency system. The Treasury, U.S. Treasury, did not want to be in the currency business, and they still don't want to be in that business. Um, So what happened was to to regulate things and to to make things more uniform which was the big point so that a dollar in philadelphia was worth the same in san francisco Uh, what happened was a national bank note was established and these notes would be printed by the u.s treasury at the bureau of engraving and printing or a private firm Uh, so they would have a standard look they would have all the anti-counterfeiting features in them and they would be sold to private banks who would then issue them. Now, a private bank, in order to issue its uh, national bank note, had to join the national banking system, which was run by the OCC, Office of Comptroller of the Currency. And the OCC was established for precisely this role. That was their job, hence the name. Um, and so a bank would have to register, be approved by the OCC. It would be monitored by the OCC. But they had to deposit with the U.S. Treasury uh, Treasury securities equal to the value of the note issuance. So, And then if there was problems with the bank, the Treasury and the OCC could clean out or get rid of that issuance by cashing in all those bonds and paying out for the outstanding issue. Now, this looks a lot like what a stablecoin does, and a lot of what the uh, early legislation or regulation was looking like. Um, And so my idea was, so To have a uniform idea of a stablecoin, you should have some kind of agency which monitors um, the structure or the coding of a stablecoin. Does a stablecoin have certain values or built a certain way to be robust enough, maybe to be interoperable uh, in order for that there's no back doors in it that could upset the stablecoin? So you could have a, a standard agency built in the US Treasury, because they would have the experts to do it. Um, The actual stablecoin could be monitored by the OCC, the stablecoin issuer, um, because that's what the OCC was built to do. And basically a stablecoin issuer is a narrow bank anyway. So the OCC knows how to do this. And so they should do that. Now, who's going to hold the backing assets? Well, the U.S. Treasury really doesn't want to do that anymore. So it'd make more sense for the Fed to do it. And then they could also monitor the overall supply of uh, money in the system and also what are the outstanding uh, notes and bonds backing us or Treasury bills probably would be what was used. So you would have the Treasury uh, monitoring the, the coding Uh, the OCC monitoring the actual issuer, and then the Fed holding the funds. And that's, to a certain extent, what Senator Toomey came up with, but he doesn't have the first tier of somebody monitoring to have a standardized stablecoin code. Uh, You know, they don't all have to run on Ether. They can run on something else. So that was my idea. Um, And it has historical precedent and makes a lot of sense.
1: Amazing. Thank you very much. Um we have a plan <laughs> that we can execute. So a stablecoin issuer would be a narrow bank, so a one hundred percent um backed stablecoin by a reserve, a fund, I guess like a high quality liquid asset, yeah. for example, or a treasury bond. Mm-hmm. Um and we have a regulation to as deep as code level. So the OCC or um, the experts at the Treasury will actually read the code and give a stamp and say, this is valid. This is secure. This is at least as secure as a private bank. And this issuer can issue a stable coin. Is this what we call a SCBDC, a synthetic CBDC? Or it, it's not tokenized um, fiat money? Mm-hmm. How, how How would you how would you call this? Ah,
0: uh, I I would call it kind of it's well kind of a synthetic CBDC has different backing or it's more uh, a direct uh, CBDC or or electronic fiat backing, whereas uh, let's call it like a an authorized stablecoin or something like that. Um, I'm sure a, a more catchy name could be created, and there in that case the issuer could ha- have any number of uh, securities or assets as the backing um, whatever um, Congress decided it would like and, you know mostly it's high quality treasuries, cash um, and it could be a- allowed to bring in other other things. Um, Probably Congress wouldn't like it, but you could maybe do foreign fiat would be acceptable euros or something like that. Um, Anything that has this, you know, that's very liquid, and very uh, secure. So that's one difference. And it's really and there's more competition because it's not just one synthetic one company doing mm-hmm. this uh stable synthetic cbdc for the government it's this wide range and of course the different stable coins could have different functions they don't all have to be payment stable coins as to labeled them which was a nice touch so there are some differences it would allow for a certain amount of uh competition and uh business development, but keeping it well enough regulated that people could be confident in the stablecoin that they're using, they can actually get their money back for it.
1: They can really cash it in. Sure thing. Thank you very much. And you mentioned um, anti counterfeit measures. Um, You also have this design of this banknote with this QR code on your website. I scanned this QR code, uh, it brought me to EtherScan, um, e- and I found this very interesting, right? So because offline payments is a is a huge open question mm-hmm. and CBDCs, and you have this design online, and so please tell us wh- about this and <laughs> what, what's the okay. general idea we have behind the QR code? Okay, uh, Because it's basically so a banknote with a QR code, right?
0: Yes. So the the next big thing uh, for CBDCs and that people are recognizing now and s- some central banks are really getting into it is how you deploy these things, especially offline. And so there's two basic ideas. One is you have a card that you can load value on and it can transmit through, you know, uh, NFC or RFID, you um, value from one card to another from a phone to a card. Uh, and things like that. Uh, and this is
1: this This is what China's doing, right? Yes. And okay.
0: And also the Avant card from the 90s was like this, the Mondex card. And there are cards like this out there right now. Okay, the alternative this is one is to use the traditional banknote platform. Remember that a banknote is a piece of technology. Um, it's a very, it's really complicated if you get into it, but it's very familiar technology. Everybody knows how to handle a banknote. They know how to keep them safe. They know what they do. They know what they look like. They know how to see if it's uh, valid or not. So the problem is how do you get this banknote to interact with an electronic network and that network would have a cbdc on it so what you can do is you put a machine readable code on that banknote and it can access a network and transfer value via that network now a lot of people would not like to are cash only and don't want to bother with cbdcs Uh, and if you use what I call a hybrid banknote, one that can connect to a network, so you could run a a euro, just print it just as it is, and you put on a machine-readable code. Someone who just wants to stay cash-only can use that euro as they have always done and just ignore that CBDCs exist. They don't have to worry about an internet connection or electricity. They just go about their business. But if they want to do something online they can either use a phone go to a kiosk go to a bank and take that note scan it in connect to a network and transfer that value on the note somewhere else it could be a remittance it could be a payment uh, and things like that so that's the basic idea about using a hybrid banknote as a way to deploy cbdc's offline um so it's it's a familiar technology basically you can on the banknote side you can print those today all the technology exists to do that the blockchain in the back is what needs to be developed and the reader and how to do that connection is what needs to be developed Um, so there's a lot of upsides to using a traditional banknote platform as a way to deploy an offline cbdc
1: how can you secure that I don't copy this QR code, give you the banknote, and then after I gave it to you, double spend it?
0: Okay. There's a number of ways to deal with this. Um, mm-hmm. Because once you, let's say you connect to a network, you transfer that value off, now you have this note that still looks denominated. So is there value in that note yet? Uh, and this depends on the technology that you're going to use um, let's say you could you could use you could use chip technology in the note and that would you would be able to turn that note on and off or have some kind of visual indicator saying this note's no longer good or it's empty and if you have a chip you could recharge the note um, and put money back in it This is rather expensive and very complicated to do um, when you're running uh, billions of units, as you would for a currency. The other way is, like you say, to use uh, just a QR code, but you're using actually two. You're using a public and private key. The visible QR code is the public key. The private key is under a foil cover or something that has to be destroyed to access it as you might see on a lottery ticket or something like that. So to access the network, you would have to remove that covering. And basically, you're damaging the note or destroying the note to do it. And you would transfer that value. And then that note is burned. That's done. Um, There's an alternative kind of note that you could use where you only have the public key and you have to take that note to Again, a special reader, a kiosk or a bank, and they would provide the private key and then you could move that value over. And whoever moved that value would take the note and then reissue it later, Uh, assign a new wallet to it and put it back out. Um, So that would be very like traditional cash. You just have to do this extra step um, to move the value.
1: That's interesting. So from a blockchain perspective, these banknotes become um, a voucher for a token <laughs> that you can redeem to, to receive this voucher and by this disvalidating the banknote. They're they're kinda like
0: paper wallets. But yes. denominated. Yes. So yes. So it's a kind of a really old idea that started showing up in like twenty twelve. There were people around the world who came up with this idea. Let's just make a paper wallet for for this specific wallet and let's denominate it. Usually it's Bitcoin. They were denominating them then and let's just move this around. But again, once you want to access the Bitcoin behind it, you had to destroy your paper wallet to to do that. So you don't have the double spend problem.
1: I see. And when you receive a banknote and you want to be double secure you would scan the QR code and see if this banknote is still valid right yes you could do that yeah i see franklin thank you very much we have a few minutes left sure. maybe only if you want tell us a little <laughs> bit about um about oh. null historical consulting um the clients <sighs> that can approach you where people can find you and then we can call it a very great podcast episode. <laughs> well, you can
0: you can google my name and go to my website and contact me that way. Um or through LinkedIn, you know, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um I'm more popular on LinkedIn, I think. Um but yeah, I've done work for um Vermonti, who's building a financial platform built around a stable coin. And so I helped develop that white paper for that. Um I talked to banknote companies again how to bridge um the world of banknote technology to uh, crypto or electronic technology. Um so yeah, I basically I like I said, I I cover most of these things or all these things and um Delivering a paper on stable coins at an economics conference later this year. Um, so and I'll well I really can't do women's history anymore. I'm too too out aside the field to do that. So if you want that, I can probably direct you somebody to somebody who can do that. Um, but yeah, we do banknote design and from banknotes to crypto, we we kind of covered all. And we can just do pure research too. Uh, if you want to know if something's legal or not. And I was approached by someone who had a treasury security that they weren't sure was legal. And, you know, there's a lot of fakes out there. So I do all kinds of stuff. But it, it's all interesting to me. So.
1: Perfect. It was very interesting talking to you, like, <laughs> wise. And um, yeah, thank you very much for taking yeah. the time. And thank you very much for your great work for enriching this space and for pushing new ideas right. into the space that we can discuss. This adds a lot of value. Thank you very much, Franklin. Oh,
0: thank you. And I'm always happy to discuss with anybody, anytime. Just track me now on LinkedIn and Twitter and we'll have a conversation.
1: We will add the links to the show notes. And I wish you a beautiful day. See you. And thank you very much for listening All to right. the Digital U-Association Podcast. Ciao.